Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Bible Ask Live, where we answer your Bible questions live here on our weekly show. My name's Tina with my friends, Jay and Wendy. Hi, guys. How are you? Hello. Hello. We're good. How are you? I'm good. Praise the Lord. It's Friday. And I'm so yeah. excited because we have our audience out here who has given us so many great questions. We're so grateful to you all out there watching. We pray that you are blessed tonight as you hear God's word in answering your Bible questions. Now, for those of you who are new, this is a live show. We do, um, you know, question. We do get comments and questions live here on our our show every week. And so, if you have a question or comment or anything you want to share, um, be sure to go ahead and put it in the chat section below. We always enjoy doing things on the fly and just kind of hearing what you guys have to think about uh, what we're saying and um, about what God's word is saying. So it's really exciting to see um, what God has to say in His word, as well as to hear from you guys all around the world. We have so many friends out there, so we're so grateful that you've chosen to join us this evening, and we just pray you're blessed. So before we go ahead and get into our we have a pretty big list of questions. We're really excited about them. Uh, Jay or Wendy, you want to pray for us? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you now for this time to gather together. We thank you for our friends and those who have submitted questions and for the viewers. And we just pray your spirit be each and with each and every one of us. Bring us into one accord in your truth and pray you give us also a special blessing in this new year that we may... Uh, have this be a year that we walk away transformed, even closer to you and more like you. And this we pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. 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 Yes. Amen. I know we've been off for a few weeks, so it's kind of like, did did we miss New Year's? <laughs> I don't know if we did. I think we did. Yep. <laughs> yes. And then we have other things going on and good stuff, but yeah, we miss exactly. you guys. All I'm good. so glad yes. to be back though. I've yes. been missing you. Amen. Oh, I miss you guys. I miss our viewers out there. It's been, a, um, you know, busy weeks, but we're so grateful to be back and back to see all these amazing questions that came in. They're really good. So, Wendy, yeah, with, without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. Let's get that first question up. All right. So, Susan is asking, where is the prophecy that speaks of the Jews returning to Israel? Current time? So... I I really appreciate this question, Susan, and I think it's a very timely and important one. And I know no matter what answer I would give, I would get people really riled up and upset. But I think this is really, really important to think about, you know, what, you know, there are plenty of prophecies in the Bible that are about Israel and the Jews and being gathered again. And I think it is a good exercise a good question to ask how do those apply today do any of them apply today because we do see people who are taking action world world leaders making decisions that are affecting millions if not if not billions of lives and it's perhaps based very much on their view of scripture and you know maybe a sense of you know feeling like we god who do what god said is going to happen you know and 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 it might be used to justify actions against other people. And what if those justifications actually are wrong? That there's actually a misinterpretation of scripture or misapplication of scripture. And again, it's having perhaps dire consequences to so many people, creating creating a lot of hardship, a lot of suffering unnecessarily. And so that's very sad. 
And I really want us to dive in so that we can with with eyes through the lens of love. I mean, that that's how we we read everything in the Bible. If it's not consistent with a God who is love, we have to really pause and say, do we understand this correctly? So if we believe that God wants people to be displaced and, and moved aside or killed so that his his people who we you know who we might think are his people can you know take back what was theirs, is that going to be consistent with the God of love? And and I realized you could have this question, well, okay, well, what about what happened in the old testament? And that's going to be uh something that we have discussed before and have to discuss it again. But even today though. What we're seeing is this going to be, especially with those of us who believe now we're under this new covenant and the New Testament. And are we are we supposed to now say, yes, we're in favor of people being completely affected, impacted, killed, all this in the name of fulfilling a prophecy? So let's look at these prophecies or, or some of them in the bigger picture and do we see love here? Do, what is going to be consistent with a God of love? And will our understanding of the prophecy in this way bear fruits of love? How is it going to affect us? Will it make us a better person? Or is it going to make us act in a way that might be contrary to really it, who really is the God of love? So let's start with Ezekiel 37, uh, starting at verse 24. And in fact, the whole, you, you could even start at chapter 15, uh, sorry, Ezekiel 37, starting at verse 15 for yourself. It's talking about this promise to, to Israel and the Jews. But let's start verse 24. It says, David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgment and observe my statutes and do them. And so first notice that David, one shepherd. Uh, is God saying literally David is going to show up? I think most people agree he's not speaking of David. And we have Jesus who showed up one day, right? And he said, I am the good shepherd. And he, in fact, said, importantly, we, we'll come back to this concept of the shepherd, right? He says of, of Israel, I even have other sheep who are not of this fold. So when Jesus talked about himself as a shepherd, he saw gathering together many people to be in one fold, not just the Jews. So going back to this prophecy, though, so this, who's this king? Who's this David? It Most people, I think, will agree through the lens of a Christian with the New Testament. will say, okay, this is talking about Christ. It says, then they, referring to uh Whoever you want to believe is God's people here says, then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwelt and they shall dwell there. They, their children and their children's children forever. My servant David shall be prince forever. And again, this, I think a lot of us who believe in this time that there will be a time where Jesus will then take the throne and rule with his people here on earth. I think, again, most Christians agree to that. The question is, when? When does that happen? So uh, <clears throat> says, Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. 
that last part especially should ring bells to anyone anyone who's read the book of Revelation. And this is very important because Revelation is tying up a lot of loose ends, a lot of things. There's a lot of prophecies, a lot of things that even maybe had God had intended one particular result or one way for it to be carried out. But because of what we'll talk about, the faithfulness of God's people, it changes. And and but God will bring fulfillment in a different way, perhaps. Uh, so in Revelation, we see says. In, in the context of Re- Revelation 21, this is after the millennium. Revelation 20 is what goes on in what people call the millennium, the thousand years, where Satan is chained up on the earth, the dead, the wicked are, de- are, are dead, dead, they're not doing anything. And then at the very end of the millennium, God raises the wicked, lets Satan run loose with them. They surround the holy city, Jerusalem, which has now landed on earth. And they're going about to rage war, and that's when the the wicked get judged. They get destroyed in in the lake of fire. So that that lake of fire consumes the whole world. It's just purged, starting over here. So burnt to a crisp. The atmosphere is burned up. The uh, ground is all burned up. Maybe all the water is burned up. And then we we turn the page. We come to Revelation twenty one verse one. It says, "Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth." For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned with her husband. And I heard a loud voice with heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. So there we go. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. So God is the tabernacle. God himself will be with them and they shall be their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there'll be no more death. In Revelation 21 verse 22 says, but I saw no temple in it for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So this is this is drawn on exactly the passage we talked about. And in Revelation, we don't get a sense that it's only the Jews who are going to make it into the new Jerusalem. In fact, in I believe it's chapter seven, we have the list of the 12 tribes or, or a listing of 12 tribes. It's not the one you see anywhere else because you have Joseph and I believe you have Ephraim both listed there, which is really interesting um, because, again, it's not a combination of tribes you see just anywhere. Uh, and in that, Right after it's listed, all these different tribes with 12,000 people in each one, it says John turned and he looked and saw a huge multitude. And he says, basically, like, I saw all these ethnicities, all these nations represented, all these different languages, a huge gathering. And this is the new 12 tribes. This is the the 144,000. It's a very inclusive group. And, and that's really the big theme of the New Testament now. God's people becomes an even bigger, inclusive group. It's not all the Jews got kicked out, they have no place, and now it's just the Gentiles. No. God says, okay, I'm starting over. Jews, if you want to be a part of my covenant, you're welcome. Gentiles, if you want to be a part of my covenant, you're welcome. Please, I want to gather as many into, into my fold as possible. So it's an inclusive gathering. 
So like Isaiah 68, 18, it says, for I know the works and the thoughts. It shall be that I will gather all nations and tongues and they shall come and see my glory. Isaiah 56, uh, verses two to eight, start talking about different peoples who are outcasts and, and not favored. One of them is the son of the foreigner. It also talks about the eunuch. And if we jump down to verse 8, God then talks about, he says, oh, this is verse 7, it says, My house should be called a house of prayer for all nations. And he says, The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, Yet I will gather him, others besides those who are gathered to him. And then Ezekiel 11, verse, uh, let's look at verse 16. He says, although I have cast them far off among the Gentiles and although I have scattered them among the countries, yet shall be a little more, yet I shall be a little sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. And he says, I will gather you from the peoples, assemble you from the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And this fits perfectly within what I'm talking about, where it's going to be a gathering after the millennium when after god well i mean the gathering actually will take place on the second coming and then everybody would be taken to heaven and then god brings them back to the land back to what we call planet earth at the end of the millennium and then jesus says then i'll give you give them his people one heart and i'll give them a new spirit and take that stony heart and flesh and give them a heart of flesh and if you keep reading like this language is the heart and soul of the new testament uh, God is in, in the new covenant and God is saying, you know, my Jews are going to be ones who are circumcised in heart. And in fact, that is what we do see said. Um, Paul talks about like a Jew is one not who is circumcised, but is one who is inwardly circumcised in their heart. Second Thessalonians 2.14, here's language from Paul. He says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our gathering together to him. He specifically uses the word gathering, and, and that would have a lot of significance to Jews. They are very attuned to that word gather. Matthew 24, verse 30, it says, Then uh, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his, le his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So, at the second coming, God is going to send out his angels, and they, you know, and this is right after he resurrects the dead. Those living, those who have been dead, will be gathered. The angels will gather them like a great harvest and then bring them. So the four winds, I mean, it's emphasized again the whole world. So it's not that God's people have been gathered before then, it's after the gathering happens at the second coming. So, and then quick, a uh, quick understanding of what happened to the Jews. Uh, if you read the Old Testament, like Leviticus 20, 22, Deuteronomy 30, 15 to 20, there's constantly these references being made by God that your 
ability to stay in the land is conditioned on your keeping the commandments. And, and it's just this, it's always been that way. Adam and Eve got booted out of, out of the Garden of Eden because of their disobedience. And we see those who have the right to the tree of life are also those who keep the commandments of God. It's always part of the condition. And it's not that we earn our right to, to get into heaven by being good, but those people who are qualified, who truly have the love of God in them, who are going to be fit, the good fit to be in heaven, those are people who actually get with God's program, who love God and out of that love reciprocate and keep his law of love. And thus, don't sin. And God will help them by the Spirit not to sin. So this is critical. And the Jews had 490 years after they got booted out the first time. If you remember, they got into idolatry. They were doing what the heathens did. Uh, and then comes Nebuchadnezzar, hauls them off to Babylon. And they were gone for 70 years. And then they come back. And once they come back and rebuilt or started, there was a decree to rebuild Jerusalem actually sort of three decrees and by the last one was i think four, uh 458 bc mm -hmm. yeah and you add 490 years which is prophesied i'm quickly going through daniel 9 chapters 24 to sorry section 24 to 27 you you map it out and you get to the day pretty much when jesus was baptized in 27 ad and then it also talks about how in the, the there's this prophetic week then of the Messiah. So it starts uh, 27 AD in the middle of this week, in the middle of these seven years, it says Messiah will be cut off. And that is times perfectly to 31 AD. And then it says, he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the middle of the week, again, that's when a lot of things happen. But he will confirm that covenant for with many for a week. So after the, the, the crucifixion, still there was three and a half years given to the Jews to get with the program, to convert, to be moved by the story of Jesus and his, and listen to the apostles who are there in Jerusalem trying to minister the, to them. But then something important happened at the end of that messianic week. In 34 AD, we finally have the stoning of Stephen. It was one thing to kill the Messiah, but in God's eyes, it's, it's, it's even worse to then go and start killing his people, his messengers, his humans who are obeying his servants. Because he says we are the apple of his eye. And at that point, when the Jews set in their heart to start persecuting the small Christian church, that's when the end begins. And, and Jesus, in fact, alluded to it. He talked about, oh, Israel, oh, Israel, how I wish I could have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks. Like he, he used that language, the gathering language again. But then he says, uh, Luke 13, verse 35, he says, your house is left to you desolate. Why? Uh, if you go earlier in that verse in Luke 13, he explains it's because they killed the prophets. They always did. In the Old Testament, they always killed God's prophets. And then we come to the New Testament, and now they're killing the modern 
uh, New Testament prophets, and the covenant then is over, covenant with the Jews. And because of their disobedience, they get booted out from the land. And so when do they come back? It's as I, as I showed, it's going to be with a great gathering of all of God's people, those who are really God's people, and not just by bloodline, but by their faith, by their, their character, their nature, their love of God. Those are the ones who will then be gathered on the second coming and taken up to heaven for, for the millennium, for the thousand years. And then at the end, we will God's people will be brought back to earth and will dwell in the new Jerusalem. So, Tina, anything you'd like to add? No, I think that was really good. Um, and I mean, when it comes to, you know, Israel and the Jewish nation in prophecy, you know, it, it's always, there's a lot of room for debate on a lot of these things. But, you know, I think Paul, like you're, you're alluding to about how Paul, you know, really um, talked about the, you know, who really is Israel. And I think that, um, you know, I've just heard so many things. People are trying to pull up all these prophecies in the book of, you know, Isaiah, like Isaiah chapter 10, you know, like verse 20, talking about the remnant of Israel returning. And, um, and so, you know, that's, they pull, they apply that to modern day Israel. And I think what Paul, and, and the thing is, Paul talks about that too. He refers to Isaiah in Romans chapter nine, talking about like in verse 29, as Isaiah said before, you know, that God is going to, you know, return. I, he keeps talking about Isaiah. Um, he's definitely quoting Isaiah chapter 10, like in verse Isaiah, or excuse me, Romans 9, 27, he says, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel that even though you are the number of seas, the remnant will be saved. So he's, you know, pulling from the Old Testament. Um, but then just like you're saying, um, who is Israel then? You know, in Romans 9, 30, he says, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness righteousness of faith, but Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion, a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. So because of the rejection of Jesus, you know, we see, you know, it's whoever accepts Jesus is God's people, is Israel. That's who Israel, you know, according to, you know, the writings of Paul, like you're saying, like that's, you know, the returning of Israel. And while we're looking at Israel in, you know, the news and, and that sort of thing going on, I think a lot of, you know, people make this hype about, you know, Israel as a physical nation and they lose the spiritual meaning. Um, you know, just like when Jesus came to this earth um, and, you know, he was a king and they said, well, he's going to come as a king. And they're like, well, he is a king. But he's not, it's not the kind of king that you're, it's a spiritual thing. And so I think a lot of times we miss, you know, what God is actually trying to communicate. And I, I feel like um, there's so much emphasis on this physical, um, the physical Israel right now, yeah. but really it's a spiritual Israel. And um, we have to get the spiritual before we can get the physical, um, if that makes sense. So um, I, I, I appreciate your answer. And I just think, you know, um, Suzanne I think it's, you know, a good thing to be looking to your Bible as we look at, you know, world events right now, but just make sure um, that you're, <laughs> you're not missing the spiritual, they're not getting caught up in the fear and worry of this world that, but just make sure your heart is right with God and that, you know, you have Christ as your rock and, um, and that he'll give you that peace that he's with you and that you are part of his kingdom. So I think that's what I would say about that. 
Amen. All right. We see, I see a few comments here. If you want to see and address those. So I think we have a comment from pride. He says, praise be, and thank you for joining us for the comment. Mm -hmm. And then. Our... Well, welcome back to Olivia. Great to have you with us as well. And let's go ahead and get our next question up. And by the way, we are live, so feel free to ask questions. Yes. Let's get our next question. Okay, so JC is asking, if God doesn't change his mind, what's the meaning to the parable of the persistent widow? That's a really great question, JC. And, and that's something, you know, I appreciate that because that's, you know, logic. You're applying logic to what you're reading in the Bible. So let's go ahead and go there really quick to Luke chapter 18. And we'll start. Um, this is basically the passages, verses 1 through 8 of Luke 18. So I'll kind of paraphrase this, but and we'll, we'll, we'll kind of go through it roughly. It says, so in Luke chapter 18, starting verse 1, it says, Then he, who is Jesus, spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart or basically not give up. It says, saying, there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard men. Now there was a widow in that city and she came to him saying, get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward, he said within himself, though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her lest by her continual coming she weary me. He says, then the Lord, obviously Jesus said, hear what the unjust judge said. He's like, listen, listen to what he's saying. He says, and shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? Like God isn't wearied by your, you know, crying out to him, just like, a, you know, a person would get worn out and frustrated. God doesn't even get frustrated. God doesn't get worn out by your, you know, constant prayers to him. And then in verse eight, Jesus says, I tell you that he will avenge you speedily. Nevertheless, when the son of man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? And so Jesus isn't saying that you need to keep praying so that God will change his mind from a no to a yes. That's not what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is saying here is that God has a plan because he's not worried about, you know, God knows what's best for you. He knows what he's going to do to intervene. But God wants you to keep pursuing in prayer for you to change, for your mind to change, for your attitude, for your spirit to change. It's not about God changing his mind. It's about you changing your heart. And so that's what the point is. That's why Jesus says in verse eight, as the point of this parable, he says, I tell you that he will avenge him speedily. He's like, God's got this. You can, you know, God will answer your prayers. He says, but here's the thing. But when the son of man, when Jesus comes, will he truly find faith on the earth? He doesn't want you to keep praying because you're hoping God will change his mind. He wants you to keep praying because you have faith and you trust God because you know that God will answer your prayer because he promised. And so that's really more the point of what Jesus is saying. And I want to kind of back this up with just two quick passages. First is in the book of James chapter one, verses two through four. And so James one, um, I love this chapter. It's really good. Um, but in verse two and four through four, it says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. So Jesus, just like he's saying, um, wants you to produce, strengthen your faith and produce patience because that will change you on the inside. 
so that you are ready for God to answer your prayer. Because a lot of times we pray and we say, God, why don't you answer my prayer? Because then I can do this, this, and this. And God is wanting you to pray and to keep at it so that you continue to realize that it is through God and God alone that you are going to receive this blessing and this answer to your prayer. And so that you grow in your faith. And so uh, in verse four, it says, but let patience have its perfect work. It's work. It's work to keep praying. It takes time and effort. It says that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And so it's not just that, you know, God wants you to reach out and pray so he answers your prayer, which he does want to. But even more importantly, he wants you to change your attitude, your heart, and seek God through faith and grow as a person, grow as a Christian, so that with the blessing, you can use it rightly, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? Like God wants you to not just get what you're asking for, but to um, receive it with a thankful heart, to receive it for his glory, to tell others and praise him for it. Because if we just got whatever we wanted as soon as we did, we would really just be like, eh, yeah, God just, he's like my ATM machine. But God is more than that. And God is a loving father. Just like a good parent wants to train their child and develop their character, so does God want to train and develop your heart as well. And then the last verses I'll just show, share really quick is in the book of Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 9. And here it reads, let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches, excuse me. And then verse seven says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. So if you're sowing prayer, you're going to reap something. You know, if you're sowing something spiritual, you're going to reap something sp spiritual. It says in verse eight, for he who sows in his flesh will reap of the flesh corruption, but he who sows to the spirit will of the spirit reap everlasting life. It says, and let us not grow weary while doing good for in due season, we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Just like in the other, what exactly what Jesus said in Luke 18, we do not lose heart. We don't grow faint. We don't grow weary. We don't get tired in doing that, which is good, but we keep going because it's not again about us being blessed. It's about us growing in our faith and growing by grace to be like Christ. So we are ready for not only the gift he wants to give us, but also ready for heaven, because that really is the ultimate gift that God wants to give each and every one of us is to be ready and fit for heaven. You know, the gift of eternal life. So again, um, it's not about, <laughs> it's not about God changing his mind at all. That's not what uh, the parable in Luke 18 is talking about. It's talking about you being persistent in prayer for your character development, for your development of faith. And once you do that, it's going to build a, tr a connection with you and God that you would know God, that you are, know he's a God who does not, you know, he's not weary, but he he's working something out in you. And maybe it's taking time also just to, for you to, you know, get out things more than what you're praying for. There could be other things in your heart that you need to continue to surrender to the Lord. And so um, God is so good. <laughs> He's too good. And he uses every situation for more than just a small little thing. You know, everything is is for a greater good. All things work together for good Who the to those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. So that would be my um, my answer to that. I don't know, Jay or Wendy, anything else? like to add yeah just a quick thought and that, that was really good and what i think is really interesting about this parable too is especially nowadays right we are just 
left and right confronted with injustices and and that word is thrown a lot around a lot and this actually is very much about justice and it's fascinating because if you go look at the chapter before chapter 17 in the last part of chapter 17 of luke and in there jesus is talking about his second coming and and the events leading up to it when his people are going to suffer and they're going to be persecuted and they're going to have a very tough difficult time and they're going to be wondering like god why have you forsaken us where are you and if you go to the very beginning of chapter 18, then chapter 18, verse 1 of Luke, it says, And he, referring to Jesus, told them a parable to show that they must always pray and not be discouraged. So Jesus knows, like those of us who are going to be encountering tough times, especially in the very final days, which we, we are either in or very quickly approaching, he's saying, like, you are going to encounter injustices. Life is going to get extremely hard. People are going to be very harsh on you. They're going to do very horrible, awful things, and you're going to be discouraged. And how are we supposed to get through it? How do we not lose discouragement? And that's where he says, like, look, even a, a mean judge, right, is going to give justice if you keep nagging him. But here, we don't even have to nag God. He already wants justice done. Verse 7. Seven says, and will not God surely see to it that justice is done? And it just sort of, it says, that, you know, and, and it says to his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night, and will he delay towards them? I mean, it seems like things are going slowly for us. It seems like it's going to take forever. Why is God just letting bad things continue to happen? Why is, why is there still evil in the world and God is permitting it? And Jesus says, God is moving with justice as swiftly as he can. And I think of Revelation Revelation uh, 6.11, where it said, talks about, uh, sorry, 6.9, where it talks about the souls under the altar. And a lot of people think these are literal souls. I, I don't believe that. I believe what it's talking about is just this sentiment of God's people uh, who have su already suffocated. Uh, that's an interesting word. Who've already suffered and died and been persecuted. And um, in their experience, they are calling out to God, crying out with a loud voice, as it says in verse 10. How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So, uh, you know, and then Revelation 13, 10 talks about this concept of he who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is patience and the faith of the saints. So God is going to bring about justice. We just have to wait. And, and, and as Tina said, yeah, keep praying, keep praying, because the prayer does change us too. That is such a great message. How could I not expect the lawyer to bring about, <laughs> talk about the, the point of justice, in this, <laughs> the point that I'm like, yeah, justice. But you're like, no, justice. <laughs> it's all about justice. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. All right. Very good. Thank you so much for that. Uh, should we get to our next one? Oh, wait. Oh, really quick. We have a comment, Sean, saying good morning. I forget. You're in Korea, right? Good morning, Sean. Good to see you again. Yes. And then, yeah, we have a comment from a, a, a Twitch viewer. Welcome. We'd like to read that, Wendy. 
No, that's what, that's just, a, that's not, a, that's not. Oh, 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 never mind, never mind. Well. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for reading ahead. Okay. Yes. She's got right. wisdom. Let's get the next question up. <clears throat> All right. So uh, Leilani is asking, in Luke 22, 35 and 36, say to the Christian that in end times, we should have. Okay, I'm trying to get, let me reread this. In Luke 25, 22, 35, and 36, say to the Christian that in the end times we should have weapons. So, yeah, I think, Leilani, I, I love this question. And so I understand you're saying, like, does that verse, Luke 22, verses 35 and 36, say that we Christians should in end times carry weapons on us? And I think I could give a very clear answer by the... The Bible is a little vague and ambiguous to us because we lack the context and there's some things that are lost in translation. But we'll see that in the full context, when we dig a little bit deeper, actually, it's very clear. The Bible is very consistent, especially with the view that God is love. <clears throat> so let's look at first the verses mentioned, starting at, at Luke 22, verse 35. And it's written, And he, Jesus, said to them, when I sent you out with money bag, with money bag, knapsack, and sandals, did you lack anything? So they said, nothing. Then he said to them, but now he who has a money bag, let him take it and likewise a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. So Jesus talking to his disciples and followers saying, right, hey guys, if you don't have a sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. Well, if we take it very literally, it does seem like God, Jesus is saying, right, guys, you need to have a sword on you. But let's keep reading. Very next verse, Luke 22, verse 37. Reading from the New King James Version. says, For I say to you, Jesus again, that this which is written must be accomplished in me. In Jesus. Yeah, in Jesus. And the verse says, and he, and, and then he quotes the Old Testament, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And Jesus picks up saying, for the things concerning me have an end. So he's, he's saying, okay, get that sword, right? But he's saying, we got to do these things because of what's written about me. They need to be accomplished. They have to be fulfilled. Prophecy must be fulfilled. And what was that prophecy? Was it that he's going to conquer by the sword, you know, lay waste to all his enemies on earth as a lot of people were expecting, being that conquering Messiah <clears throat> uh, with a human blade? Or was it that he would die, he would suffer, he would be persecuted, he would experience massive injustice, and then he would be uh, victorious by that? So does Luke 22, 37 indicate Jesus was being literal? So when he said, go grab a sword, is this, is, does this next verse we just read suggest he was being literal when he said, get a sword? Or was he saying being, or was he being figurative when he said, go buy a sword? And I think we have to, to read verse 36 consistent with 37. If Jesus says, says go buy a sword, but I got to let bad things happen to me, we can tell he's being figurative. He's saying we got to prepare for some sort of conflict, right? He's being figurative. Just like when Jesus says, hey, I want you to go. If you want to follow me, you need to go grab your cross, pick it up and follow me. 
is he being literal? Like now we have to all go find crosses. We got to carry them and, and we got to be, we expected to be literally crucified. And we all know, absolutely not. That's not what Jesus meant. But he meant we'd have to go through an experience of suffering, an experience of persecution, an experience of, of sacrificing ourselves and letting ourselves die um, and, and be resurrected in a sense through Christ. Like we have to have that sort of experience. And Jesus all the time, right? All the time, well, not absolutely all the time, but very frequently, many times he's speaking figuratively. Now, we can keep reading, in fact. So we've been reading Luke 22. We just read verses 35 to 36 and then verse 37. Let's look at the next verse after this. This is verse 38, reading from the NIV version. It says, the disciples said, see, Lord, here are two swords. <laughs> so they actually said, Jesus said, hey, we need to get some swords. And they, and they turned around, count, and they're like, hey, Jesus, we already got two swords. And how does Jesus respond? He says, that's enough. That's enough, he replied. So in English, we read that, we see, well, that's enough. Okay, so Jesus said, good, that's enough. We got two swords, that's what we need. That's not actually the right interpretation, believe it or not. Now, it's an accurate translation. Literally, if we take it word for word in the Greek and make it English, it would be, that's enough. So the translators translated correctly, but something's being lost in translation. What was meant? So in Greek, it would be esti hikanos. Esti hikanos. And according to Thayer's Greek lexicon, which you can find on the Blue Letter Bible app, it says, means it is enough, equivalent to enough has been said on this. So you guys have said enough. And specifically about this verse, it says, and by the way, this, this phrase doesn't, doesn't show up very commonly in the New Testament. Uh, it says, for Jesus saddened at the paltry ideas of the disciples breaks off in this way of conversation. The Jews, and then it adds that the Jews, when a companion uttered anything absurd, were accustomed to use the phrase. So in other words, Jesus is very politely saying, hey, disciples, shut up. You guys don't know what you're talking about here. Uh, you completely missed the point of what I was saying. That's what he meant when it is enough. Again, he did very politely, would have been kindly. Uh, I'm just exaggerating here. So you get the point. Hey, guys, you're missing the point. Don't say anything more. You, you, you don't get it. So. And by the way, Jesus also previously has used the word sword figuratively. You see this in Mark, sorry, Matthew 10, verse 34. He says, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. So what does he mean here? I'm not coming to bring peace. I'm causing my words. What I'm going to do is going to cause lots of conflict. It's going to create uh, debates and people are going to, going to disagree and it's not going to be a message that just the whole world kumbayas instantly. Nope. <clears throat> he realized it's a divisive message he has. And we also see um, uh, this word, the sword, used very much in a spiritual sense through the rest of the Bible. But before we get there, let's take a pause quickly at the Garden of Gethsemane. And there we see Judas, who he shows up with a great multitude, quote-unquote, with swords and staves. 
Matthew 26, 47. So those who show up at Gethsemane armed to the teeth, those are Satan's people. Those are the bad guys. They're the ones who are totally armed. Uh, but there is one exception, though, one notable exception. There is Peter, who probably still misinterpreted Jesus from that verse we talked about earlier, right? Back in Luke. So John writes in the Gospel of John, verse 18, sorry, chapter 18, verse 10. He says, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And, and then verse 11, so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? So Jesus said, Peter, what are you doing? Put away your sword. And then Matthew 26 adds uh, some more to this. Uh, verse 51 Jesus says, uh, Matthew doesn't name Peter. He's a little bit, bit polite here, but it says, Jesus said to, be, um, to his companions who reached for his sword, sorry, um, Jesus said, put your sword back in its place for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. <clears throat> Think about that. If you're going to live by the sword, if you're going to be a violent person, if you're going to be attacking people, if you're going to be carrying a gun with you, you're going to be more likely to be shot and die by a gun or be attacked. And I've heard studies back this up. If you have a house, if you have a gun in your house, you are statistically more likely to get shot. Not necessarily from your own gun, but then you're going to rely on your gun. And then the other person is going to be more likely to bring out their gun and someone's going to get shot. And is this God's plan? Is this how God wants his people to be? Does that sound like living by faith? Or is that living by your own strength for your own survival? Again, how, how does God want us to be living? What's the life of love by faith going to look like? And then when we continue to study the New Testament, we'll see, for example, Ephesians 6, 17. Uh, Paul says, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The sword of God, the, 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 the sword of the spirit, the word of God, that is one of your weapons. That's a part of the armor of God that we as Christians are called to wield. Not the physical sword, but the spiritual sword. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even to the, the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart. And then in Revelation, four times, it's talking about Jesus and giving the imagery of, of a sword coming out of his mouth. In fact, it says a sharp double-edged sword. So again and again and again, we're seeing the sword we wield is going to be the Bible, the Word, the Scriptures. That is how we conquer, and that is how we get victory in our faith. And by the way, I... It's very easy to get violent with our use of, of scripture and to injure people with it. It It is a double-edged sword. It does hurt. So I definitely encourage everybody to always wield it with love. Amen. Very important caveat there. But that is the weapon, weapon we wield. This is how we live by faith. It's not actually having literal weapons. Jesus wants us to rely on him, his spirit, his protection, his word. Mm -hmm. Tina, anything you would like to add? 
I think that was really good. Um, and I think, you know, again, it's it's so it's so easy for us as humans. You know, we see that in you know ancient Israel. We see that with Jesus' disciples. How it's like we're so concerned about the physical and we miss the spiritual. And so, you know, that's something like I really think that's like the lesson. Almost this whole episode, like this kind of what God <laughs> is showing us. Yep. You know, is it's not about the physical. This, you know, this is going to pass away, but the spiritual that's what's eternal. And so, yeah, the the sword, you know, the weapon that God wants you to have, you know, and have it, you know, and well versed in it is the Word of God, um, is the Bible, and we really need to know it, and we need to know it well. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to stand. Um, and then it is our only, you know, method of, you know, of of attack in in essence. And I'm glad you brought up, you know, um, Ephesians chapter six, talking about, you know, the armor of God and, you know, just really quick going through all those things, you know, it's a helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, um, you know, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the sandals of the gospel of peace. Um, and so it has all these things of protection, but the only means by which we are to be on the offense is with God's word. And again, Great like, point. you're yeah. And I think it's so important, like you're saying, to be careful because I think so often we mix God's word and our word and that's mm -hmm. when it becomes dangerous and it can hurt people for sure. But we have to, um, you know, be sure we're, we're rightly dividing the word of truth and we're rightly and lovingly speaking the truth um, to others to help and heal, um, not to hurt. And, um, you know, and just like when Jesus is, you know, talking about him having the, the sword to cut, he's not trying to cut to hurt you. He's trying to cut away the bad part and save you just like a surgeon. You know what I mean? And I guess that's more the mental image that I see when I see Jesus, you know, cutting with his sword. It's not that he's trying to attack you and hurt you. He's trying to just glean, you know, clean off the, <laughs> the, the cancer that's trying to kill you. He's trying to get rid of those, those things of sin that are, are hurting you. Similar to the other biblical analogy of God pruning us, taking off the dead, the dead parts so that the living might flourish. Exactly. No, absolutely. So, um, yeah, we definitely need to focus on that. And and it, I know it, it's hard when you, you we live in a world of fear, but Jesus says, fear not, for I've overcome the world. And so it's really a trial of our faith, like to not be afraid, to not fear and to put our full and complete trust in him. And, you know, that's something I struggle with too. It, it's hard to, to you know, not want to. Yeah, that's yourself. truly living by faith. Mm -hmm. But, yeah. you know, God is, God is merciful. And I, if you ever wonder, will God protect me? You have to read a book that I read um, many years ago. It was so amazing. It's called A Thousand Shall Fall. And it was a man who was drafted into the Nazi army. He was he did not support the Nazi party. He was a Christian, but he said he knew that he was a very good shot and he knew that he could hurt people with a gun. And so he threw his gun in a lake and said, I and he just like whittled a wooden gun so that the army wouldn't know that he that he threw it away because he said, Lord, I will not kill. I won't. And, and he so, knew, yeah, even having it would be a temptation to him to kill. Exactly. Just yeah. to protect himself. And he said, Lord, I, I put my full trust in you. And there was 10,000 people in his regime and only seven survived. And he was one of them. And so I, I mean, ah, sorry, <laughs> I get so emotional, but you, I mean, you see God can protect you, but you have to really live by faith, you know, just like you've seen in the Bible. Um, it, you know, you can, like God will protect you, but it, it, you know, we really do have to you know, come down to, do we trust God by faith? And so, um, you know, it, we serve a great God and we have to not 
forget that for sure. So, amen. So, yeah, again, that book is 10,000 Shall Fall. Highly Eight, recommend it. Oh, a thousand. Oh, a thousand. sorry, a thousand. Yeah, it's quoting okay, Psalm yeah. 91. A thousand yeah, yeah. shall fall. They said 10,000 at the other side, but it's right. not nine. Yeah, that one. So, anyways, I think we have time for one more question. All right, let's get that question up. So Vincent is asking, my wife passed 10 years ago. I have not drummed about her, did not receive any signs from her. I want to know whether she is in heaven or the spiritual world with God, whether she is all right. My friend Vincent, I really appreciate you reaching out to us and sharing this with us and, you know, seeking the Bible for some peace of mind. And I really hope that today we can give that peace of mind to you through God's word, which is the truth. And so um, my friend Vincent, first of all, I want to say I'm so sorry for your loss. Um, you know, I'm so sorry. We live in a world of sin where we, we you know, do love, lose our loved ones for a time. And it, and it is hard and it's very sorrowful. But I do want you to know where your wife is now. And um, let us go to God's word because I want to make sure this is super clear. This is not my opinion. This is God's word. And so I just hope that you see this um, for what it is. And so I want you to first know that when the Bible talks about death, it talks about it as the, um, in a way, um, the image that it portrays death as is as a sleep, right? Because it's not forever. We're not going to die forever. If we've received Christ, we will awake to everlasting life. And there's so many places in the Bible where God talks about death as a sleep. It's temporary. Um, and so you look in the book of John 11, this is talking about Lazarus. You remember this story where Jesus uh, raises Lazarus from the dead. And so um, in John chapter 11, verses 11 through 14, um, you know, Jesus says, you know, these things he said after him, you know, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I might wake him up. So he tells his disciples that, hey, Lazarus is sleeping. Well, his disciples say, you know, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get well. Like, don't, don't wake him up. Let him sleep. He'll, maybe he'll get better. Yet another good example of disciples taking Jesus too literally. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, he, they were thinking literal sleep. And verse 13, Jesus says, however, Jesus spoke of his death. But they thought he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. And so in verse 14, Jesus then plainly says to him, Lazarus is dead. And so Jesus is, you know, again, depicting death as a sleep. We see this in the Old Testament um, in Psalms chapter 13, verse 3, when David says, Consider and hear me, O Lord my God, enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. So, you know, David was crying to God for salvation, to help him out of, you know, he was constantly being pursued by um, his father-in-law, Saul, who was trying to kill him. And so he said, you know, I'm going to sleep. He, he didn't want to die. And so it, he likened it unto sleep. And then again, you know, um, while death is asleep, uh, thank God, this is where it gets good. There's a promise of eternal life. There's a promise of waking from this sleep. And so um, I want you to know, Vincent, that, you know, your wife is not, you know, somewhere in a spirit world. She's not, you know, um, hurting anywhere. She's not suffering. She's asleep. Just like, you know, see a, a child or a person calmly, peacefully sleeping. That's what she's doing right now. She's at peace. She's sleeping. Um, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 
through 18, I want to read this to you because I think this is the most important passage of scripture for anybody who's ever lost a loved one. Um, this is God's words of comfort and promise to you. So I really hope you take this to heart in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. And here it reads, it says, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. I don't want you to be like somebody who doesn't know concerning those who have fallen asleep, those who have died, lest you sorrow or are sad like others who have no hope. You should not be sad like as if there's no hope. No, no, no. It says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus, those who have died in Jesus. It says, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep or those who have, who have died. It says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So when Christ comes to take his people home, those who are alive here on earth, we're going to be on the land on earth and we're going to see Jesus coming and he's going to shout and he's going to make a call for his people to come out of the graves and all those who've ever died will come out of the grave and they'll be caught up to God in the air and so we'll see it happen if we're alive on the earth we will see our loved ones who've passed away resurrect and go up to Jesus in the clouds and then um, it says, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus shall we always be with the Lord. And verse 18, it says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. This should be a comfort to you that whether, um, you know, you, you fall asleep in Jesus as well, or if you live to see Jesus come, that you will see your wife again. She's sleeping until Jesus comes and takes her out of the grave. And so, this is a very, very beautiful um, and precious promise that we can take home um, from God, that he has our loved ones, that we can rest assured of our salvation and that those who are, um, who have, you know, passed away, that they are sleeping and they're at peace and they're at rest. And so, um, you know, just one more passage to just show you um, for sure, you know, this is, you know, this is the course of events that will happen in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 through 58. It says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep or pass away or die, but we shall all be changed in, the, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal, meaning our bodies that can die, must put on immortality. God will give us a new body that cannot die. That's a promise and a blessing we can have our put our hope in. It says, so when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And we can say, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, hell, where is your victory? No, we have been victorious through Jesus Christ. He has overcome the grave. We will never die again. We will never be separated by, from our loved ones, from God, from Jesus in the sleep of death ever again. And then it goes on and um, uh, it says in verse 30 or 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 50, it says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So whatever we've put our investment in, in this life, just know that, um, 
We want to put our investment in spiritual things and things that cannot be corrupted, not in this physical world. You know, I think a lot of times we want physical things. We want a sign. We want a dream. We want, you know, something. We want to see a vision. We want some sort of miracle to know, you know, that something's going on. But Jesus is simply telling us the truth that, hey, I've promised and my promises are real and my promises are here for you. You just need to trust them by faith. And when you do, you will see the fruit. You'll see it in your life. You'll see the peace that I promised you that passes all understanding come into your heart and it'll change you on the inside. And once you receive that by faith and you grow and develop in your faith and trust in God, then you can have the the blessings that Jesus has for you, which is not only, you know, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, when you ask God for his spirit, the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, um, you know, gentleness, temperance, all these beautiful things, but we can know God and know that we have eternal life. And we know that we can, you know, set our, <laughs> set our, our money in the bank in heaven, in, in our heavenly treasure. And we can know we have eternal life and salvation and we will see our loved ones again. And so I hope that that is a comfort to you, Vincent. And again, I I'm, I'm so sorry for, you know, I'm sure you've had a very hard time since your wife's passing and I, and I, I really, my heart goes out to you. Um, but please know that God loves you and he loves your wife and he's not forgotten her. And that um, in the last day, uh, you will see your wife one day again. So may God bless you, Vincent. And if you ever have any other thoughts or questions about this, please be sure to go to our website or reach out to us once again. We are here to pray for you and, and um, to point you closer to your walk with God. Uh, Jay or Wendy, anything else on that? Nope. Amen. And definitely we're praying for you, Vincent. Yeah, for sure. That's really tough. Well, we are at the one hour mark. So I know we have some other things we love to dive into, but we do want to keep this show at an hour. So, and the next one is like, that's going to be a big question. So we should wait for next week. I'm going to let you take care of that one, Jay. Um, <laughs> I think it's going to be a good one though. So yeah, we got, you... I'm, I'm very excited about several next week. Yeah, they're going to be great. So if you've enjoyed uh, watching our show, please be sure to like and share our, our program. It just helps us to share God's word and, and be a blessing to those around us. And, um, you know, our purpose here at Bible Ask, you know, we are volunteers. We want to take the gospel to the world. So we just pray that, uh, again, if you would uh, like and share our content, that would really be a blessing to us. And we hope that you'll join us again next week at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Um, we are on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch. And we just pray that you are blessed You are blessed by the show. I think we're also actually on um, podcast now, too, or I hope I'm saying that right. <laughs> so yes, go ahead and check us out on our social media platforms. We um, we love um, not only sharing uh, with you guys and but also you know making our content available for you to share with others to to share God's word um, because that's the whole point. We just we love God and we want mm -hmm. God's love to go out to the world. So we pray you uh, are blessed and we would join us again next week at 6 p.m. again, Friday, um, Pacific Standard Time. So with that being said, Jay, Wendy, do you want to pray for us to close? Sure. And by the way, if you want to find the podcast, you can find them on Audible and Spotify and other locations. So if, if you're interested in that. But let us now bow our heads and thank the Father for this evening. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your blessings, for your spirit, for your word, for your encouragement, for your love. And we 
are grateful for each person who submitted the questions that are so thought-provoking and give us opportunities to discuss very important pressing issues. And I pray that you be with each and every viewer, each and every um, questioner, and every person who is just out there struggling, looking for your truth, and pray you bring it to them, you guide it to them, and bring your comfort to all who are, who are hurting, encouragement to those who are discouraged. Pray you be with Vincent and fill that void in his heart, Lord, and give him renewed purpose in his life and clear mission. And all these things, Lord, we just pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. And again, we welcome you to come back next week on Friday, 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Good night, everybody, and God bless you. Bye-bye. Thank you.